Welcome to episode 117, Supporting Multiracial Individuals, Things to Know, Approaches, and Considerations, featuring Dr. Dana Stone, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. This is Elizabeth Irias, and I am excited today to be joined by Dr. Dana Stone. Dana is a licensed marriage and family therapist and associate professor and fieldwork coordinator in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at California State University, Northridge. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Dana, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? And um, today we're going to be talking about what it means to have either a biracial or multiracial identity. Um, so please tell us how you developed this particular specialization. Absolutely. So I am a professor of marriage and family therapy at Cal State Northridge, which you already mentioned. And my research interests have um, centered in the mixed race experience from the very beginning when I was a master's student. Um, and it, one of the things that I learned very early on was that the personal can intersect with the professional very quickly in our field of marriage and family therapy or probably any counseling field. And I started my, my wrote my very first research paper on the mixed race experience back in the early 2000s when the literature was actually quite limited. And the reason why I started writing about it early on in my um, graduate career is because it was personal. So I will share with you my social location because I think it's important for listeners to know who they're hearing from and, and why this is important to talk about. So I identify as a mixed race, black, white, cisgender female. And I grew up in uh, a household with a black father and a white mother. And I have two siblings who are mixed race as well. And I also identify as being in an interracial marriage because I am mixed race and my husband is white. So I have sort of multiple layers of experience in the mixed race identity. And that is, it's centered in my personal experiences. And then my research, my dissertation research, things that I've written about and present about are connected to the mixed race experience. Thank you, Dana. Um, this topic you and I have talked about before, this topic is particularly meaningful to me. So I am white and I am in a multiracial marriage myself and my children um, are multiracial. So why don't we start there and have this conversation about um, terms and different terminology. What does multiracial, multiethnic, uh, biracial, what do these terms really mean through your lens as someone who's both viewing this as an academic and as a professional in the field? That's a great place to start, actually. So the terminology used for multiracial people across American history. So everything I talk about, I'm going to really center in the United States because I'm assuming that's where most of the listeners are coming from. Um, there's history and context all over the world, but I'm really going to focus on American history. So the history of the mixed race person in the United States starts from 1600s and um, the enslaved peoples um, and the indigenous peoples of the United States um, inter mixing with the um, people who immigrated to the United States in, in those beginning times. And so in the beginning, there may have been um, prior to slavery and 
prior to the enslavement and harm brought to the indigenous peoples, there may have been mutual relationships, but historically, um, a lot of the relationships were not mutual. They were um, harmful relationships, but race mixing, as we sort of call it, um, began in the beginning. It's from the very beginning. And the attribution of mixed race heritage um, often fell to the non-white person in the relationship. The mixed race heritage was attached to the children um, the, the non-white heritage. So early on, particularly with enslaved Africans, mixed race people who were born from enslaved Africans and white people were um, considered black. Um, and so that's sort of the beginning of time. There were negative terms that were used, which I don't necessarily think is relevant today, but um, there are some definitely problematic terms that have lasted throughout history. But through time, people have sort of evolved the language for mixed race people. And mixed race actually used to be considered a more negative term. Mixed is a term that was really common in the 70s and 80s. And it's a term that the mixed race community and interracial families sort of claimed back as their own. And so some people from earlier eras see mixed race or saying you're mixed as negative, but children of the 70s and 80s use the term mixed positively. And from mixed, we have other terms like biracial, um, multiple heritage, multi-ethnic, um, and the term, the term that's considered the most inclusive and, and encompassing currently is the term multiracial. Um, so a lot of scholars um, use the term multiracial currently um, because they find it to be a term that invites in people who have more than two races. So multi-multiracial people. And it's inclusive of ethnicity because in the United States, race and ethnicity are con confusing terms. People don't totally understand the differences. And the U.S. is a race-based society. And so multiracial and multi-ethnic sometimes are used interchangeably, but multiracial scholars most commonly use the term multiracial. And I would just add one thing. To the term talk, it's really important when you're talking to someone who identifies as multiracial, biracial, mixed race, whatever it is, what term they use, um, because there's a lot of variability there. I use biracial, mixed race, and multiracial. All of those terms are comfortable for me, but they aren't comfortable for all mixed race people. So we just want to make sure that we check in with people, how they identify. And for some people who are, in fact, multiracial or multiethnic, they only identify as a single race. And that's a topic for that. We could talk about that for days. But just to say, it's really important to check in with people about how they identify. So those are the broad terms. And then there are specific terms that groups of people have um, selected too. And we could talk about those for days. But there's like terms like Hapa, Blacksican, Latinegra. There's all kinds of terms that people have sort of um, created to help encompass all of who they are because multiracial general term, but then we can get more specific. So that's sort of a short version of a very long and complex answer. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I appreciate that note about 
encouraging clinicians to use the language of the client. Um, I think that's a really important point. And I know I can relate in my own family, this phenomenon of, well, are we multicultural or are we multi-ethnic or are we multiracial? And it just gets really complicated really fast. So I appreciate you offering the language of multiracial to kind of be the umbrella term that encapsulates all of these things underneath it. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what the multiracial population is in the United States? I would love to. So I will give a very brief history lesson of the U.S. Census. The U.S. Census is a big thing in the mixed race community for lots of reasons, but a part of it is because the United States government tries to tell us who we are. And a part of the reason why they like to try to tell us who we are is there's some positive stuff. You know, they want to provide services. They want to make sure that there's representation. There's some positive things in there. But some of the challenging things about the U.S. Census is that the government tries to sort of categorize people based on what they think is right and not necessarily based on what the people think of, is right, if that makes sense. And so um, the 2000 census was the first time in American history that people were allowed to check more than one box on the census. And so prior to that time, um, our numbers our understanding of the numbers of mixed race people in the United States was based on assumptions and based on data about households and like marriage. So like if there's two adults in the household and they check the box that they're coupled or marriaged in the past, there was an assumption that there was mixed race, that the children in the household would then be mixed race or multiracial. But now we actually have census data where people were able to check more than one box in 2000. So in two, um, the year 2000, 2.4% of the United States population checked more than one box. And then in the second census that allowed the checking of more than one box, 2.9% checked more than one box. I'm going to add the complication, Elizabeth, which connects directly to your own personal experience, which is the ethnicity box on the census. So the, the census categorizes people based on race and race is defined as um, white, black or African-American, American Indian or Alaskan Native, Asian, Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, or quote, some other race. What you'll notice is missing there is Hispanic or Latinx, Latino, Latinx. I use Latinx, but um, other people have different preferences. I, I will just share that that's the term I use. And so Hispanic, according to the census, is not considered a racial category. So the U.S. census then does not account for people who identify with Hispanic identity as a racial category. So then that group is not necessarily included in the who is multiracial according to the census. So um, I won't spend too much more time on this, but I just find this fascinating. So Pew Research Study of 2015 gathered data to help make sense of the census data to help us get more clear about who is multiracial in the United States. And the Pew Research data includes people who identify as Hispanic on the census. And so you jump from 2.9% of the population to 6.9% of the population identifying as multiracial. And so you have the, the census data that says 2.9%. 
and the Pew Research data, which is more encompassing, that says 6.9%. So I would say the, the numbers are probably much higher, but in terms of people who would identify as multiracial, about 7% of the population. And I would also add that a significant portion, probably 60 to 70% of that is our children under the age of 18. As you talk about this, I can hear kind of this conflict then that leads to potentially even more confusion about a multicultural or multiracial identity because just the terms themselves are ambiguous. So let's start by talking about what it really means to have a multicultural or multiracial identity. Um, From here on out, I'm going to use the term multiracial. And Dana and I are both under the understanding that for the purpose of this podcast, when we talk about multiracial, we mean everything underneath that, whether it's multi-ethnic, multicultural, um, biracial, whatever is comfortable for a person and how they identify. So what does it mean to be multiracial in the United States? And how does that impact identity development? It's perfect question. So the thing about being multiracial, there's there's two there's two things for us to think about. One is um, there's formal definitions. There's a whole um, area of scholarship called critical mixed race studies, and there are scholars who spend all of their research time and energy on the multiracial experience. And so there are some formal definitions of what is multiracial. So I'll share with you very basic definition. When you have two biological parents who are from two different racial categories, it's very simple, two or more different racial categories. So in my family, my dad is black or African-American and my mom is white. So I am therefore mixed race, multiracial, because my parents are come identify personally and also are designated from two different racial categories. Now, multiracial can also encompass um, people who identify, like if you have, so I'll use my brother as an example. His uh, partner is multiracial herself, uh, Mexican and white, and he is black and white. So his children are multiracial. Black, Mexican, and white, right? So they're multi multi They're like the second generation of multiracial. And um, so there's, so it's basically when you have two biological parents who identify from one or from two different racial categories, two or more different racial categories. That's the very basic definition. And it, in, it's in, it encompasses ethnicity. So remember that we're encompassing ethnicity here, which means we're including um, anyone who identifies as Latinx, anywhere in that sort of very large um, category. Similarly, Asian American, et cetera, very large categories, which is going back to before when we were talking about, it's really important for some people, those broad categories. So for example, Latinx isn't specific enough. So a person might wanna very much identify with their Mexican heritage. um, That's very important to them. And so the other thing that we wanna talk about maybe now or in a little while, would be also acknowledging some of the differences between individuals who are multiracial with one white parent and individuals who are multiracial with parents from two or more minoritized categories. So they don't have white as a part of their identity because there's power, privilege, and oppression pieces connected to the white identity that are very important to acknowledge and can really um, 
have a different kind of an impact on the person's identity and the family dynamics. There's a whole, that's a whole thing to also consider as well. I appreciate you bringing up that point and acknowledging the difference between uh, having one parent that uh, is part of the dominant culture and a parent that is not, and then the difference between that uh, compared and contrasted with somebody who has parents that are both from um, a marginalized racial or ethnic group. I'm a white parent here of brown children. Um, and there's kind of this joke in my family where it's like, well, mom is white, dad is brown, and the kids are light brown. And this identification with brownness and the um, conglomeration of what that means to carry multiple uh, ethnic and racial identities. Why don't you talk with us about what that means when you're going through the stages of development and identity development of basically, and not to quote Zoolander, but the who am I in relation to the rest of the world around me? And where do I fit in when I'm kind of straddling multiple groups? Yeah. So one of the the most important components of identity development and particularly racial identity development and more specifically multiracial identity development is the, the racial socialization that happens for kids. And so, you know, researchers will tell you that racial socialization starts at home. And so for multiracial families with mixed kids, it's really important for parents to communicate first with each other about their own race and racial identities, to be able to have conversations about that in order to have conversations with your children about it. So historically in mixed race families, especially mixed race families where there was one parent with a marginalized racial identity and the other parent who maybe was white, it was sort of left to the parent of color to racially socialize their children. And researchers have shown that um, black families in particular actively um, racially socialized, proactively racially socialized their children. And in white families, this happens less often. And then statistically in African-American families, ra proactive racial socialization is happens at much higher rates than Latinx families and much higher rates than Asian families. And so the, 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 the default was to have the parent of color do the racial socialization. But what researchers, multiracial researchers have found is that it's really critical for the parents to communicate or parents or caregivers to communicate so that they can communicate with their children and create a space where children can talk about what's happening for them. And so in identity development, racial identity development is a set subcategory of overall development particularly for kids of color. And so researchers have found that people who identify as white don't necessarily have a racial identity development process, sometimes ever, but then if ever, it's often in relationship to other people. So maybe a close friendship or a romantic relationship, or if they have children in a, in a multiracial um, relationship. So then there's not necessarily a need to address identity development, racial identity development for white individuals, which is why white individuals don't often think about racially socializing their mixed race children. So 
the creating space for communication, conversation, teaching children about race and ethnicity. Sometimes parents shy away from that because they're worried. Like if I teach my children about this, it's going to make them see race. It's going to make them see color. That is not true. Children start to um, notice difference as early as age three, uh, racial differences. They may not have the language for that, but they, they notice it as early as age three. And so inside the family, and then if those kids are in daycare or preschool or whatever it is, that is intensified times, times so much. And so parents think, oh, if I tell my children this, it's going to teach them to see difference and all that stuff. Our brains are just structured that way. We're designed to look for differences, to compare, to categorize. That's how that's how we learn. That's how we come to understand things. And so kids are doing that early on. And so the more parents are willing to talk to kids about race and racial identity and their race and their racial identity, the better it is for kids. And kids are going to share with them positive and also negative experiences that they might have in the world. Um, about their race and their racial identity. So it's really important for parents to openly communicate with each other and with their children to foster a positive racial identity development for their children. And this conversation can start as young as three or four, and it should continue throughout your child's life, really. Um, the more we communicate with kids, the, the better able they are to navigate the positive and the, the difficult aspects of being um, a, mar a, a, a part of the marginalized population in the United States. Because more often than not, you know, kids are going to experience microaggression, discrimination, racism. And so the more parents communicate openly with their kids, the better it is for them in the long haul. Thank you, Dana. That, that leads me to another question. That's the perfect world for the parents to be actively engaging in these conversations, not just once, but over the course of a lifespan for their kids about what it means potentially, you know, and every kid is going to make their own identity, um, but information about their different components of their heritage. For the people that did not grow up in that kind of environment, how is it different for those people that didn't grow up in an environment where this was being continuously discussed? That's such a great question. And the piece about a positive racial identity, one thing that I want to add that sort of leads into your next question, Elizabeth, is this idea that kids from mixed race families, kids who have mixed race identities, don't always identify as mixed race or multiracial. So that's a really important thing as well. Um, researchers, multiracial researchers have found that mixed race people's identities are fluid. And what that means is that Multiracial people identify differently depending on time and context. And there's other factors as well, but those are two really big um, factors. So like in early childhood, they may identify more strongly as um, mixed race because maybe that's the messaging the parents are giving, or they might identify more strongly with the same um, gender this, the parent who has the same gender identity as them. So they might be more connected to the parent with the same gender identity or the parent who is doing like more of the caregiving, they might identify more strongly racially with that parent. And so that's just an example of childhood. And that's not problematic. There's nothing wrong with that um, at all. It's just like any other developmental 
things that kids go through, like where a child maybe might say that they want to marry a caregiver, like, oh, I want to marry you when I grow up, because you're strongly identifying with that person. They're, there's a, a, an important part of your life. And so those things sort of feed into how you see yourself, etc. And so if, if you do not have like a strong parental influence, maybe strong um, convert, like open conversations, if there's not a lot of discussion about race or racial identity in a mixed race person's life, they are more likely to identify, have more influence from outside. So for example, culturally in the United States, we want to categorize people as either or, which is why having two, being able to check multiple boxes on the census was such a big deal. Because in the United States, we really wanted to, we really want to, it's black or white. There's not, there's not a mix, right? There's no in between. And so for kids who maybe don't have uh, multiple parents or multiple caregivers who are sort of talking about different experiences and different racial identities, et cetera, they might lean more towards one. They might lean more towards what society tells them they are. So um, the most common mixed race experience that we tend to talk about and focus on the United States is the black, white um, mixed race population because of the history um, from enslavement to now. Um, but we know that there are there are so many mixed race people. In fact, like the higher percentages of mixed race couplings are white and indigenous people and black and indigenous people, which comes before the white black mixed race um, coupling. And so just to say that children who don't have those conversations aren't being like talked about mixed race identity and all of those things are likely gonna be influenced by peers more strongly influenced, all kids are going to be influenced by peers, but more strongly influenced by peers or more strongly influenced by who the world tells them they are. And like, for example, I'll just share a little from my own experience. In the 80s, the 70s and 60s, 70s and 80s, if you had one Black parent, first of all, the rule of hypodescent is this rule that was comes from 1600s, which was if you have one drop of Black blood, you are black. That is historic, right? That's history. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we didn't call it the rule of hypodescent, but it was there was a very strong belief and value that if you had a black parent or a parent that identified in racially as black in any way, the child of that parent was black, period, the end. But you saw a shift in that in the late 80s going into the 90s, where multiracial families were saying, but is it fair that that there's only one option? And is it accurate? And is that true to the experiences of the mixed race person that they only have one identity? And for some people, it's true. It's very much dictated by skin color, by primary, like primary caregiver, the race of the primary caregivers I have already mentioned. And it's also very much influenced by regionality. So people who are born, mixed race people born in the South who have one Black parent are more likely to identify as Black and not as mixed race than people born, for example, in California, where we are. There are people born in California who have one Black parent and one other race parent are more likely to identify as multiracial. And also, just to go back to my earlier point, may identify 
differently depending on context, time and context, right? So that that's that's also going to influence. So going back to your question, I apologize for sort of digressing there, but going back to your question, it's very much, it's not necessarily if kids grow up in families where they don't have those conversations that it's going to be problematic. It may not be an issue at all. So for a multiracial person to identify with a single race category is not inherently problematic. It could be like, so for example, if you have a client who comes in, who was maybe raised by a single parent and maybe that parent is um, Latina and they are very fair skinned and maybe their parent is, is brown as you were talking about brown skinned and they, they, they're very close to their parent, but racially they feel like kind of, they're not really sure how to identify because maybe socially when they try to claim their Latinx heritage, they're not accepted and they go home and maybe they try to talk to their, their mom about it. And their mom says, you're like, you're Latinx. Like you are this, you know, this is who you are. But they're like, but socially there's a conflict there. So that could be something that that a, that an individual who maybe doesn't have constant communication might bring up in therapy. It, it could be a problem. It may not be a problem. But sometimes there's that conflict for individuals who maybe don't feel like they match. They don't feel like they relate. They don't feel like they fit in. And that could be intrafamilially and it can also be socially there's there's lots of things that sort of are at play in that experience i'm glad you bring up that piece of what can happen happen even within a family um and i've seen that in families too uh, um whether the family is multiracial um but that some kids will be born and have certain features that make them more identifiable with a particular racial or ethnic group than others. And in my own life, having observed um, that phenomenon, so my husband, his family um, originated in Nicaragua, so how that is affecting their children as well as to whether or not they can essentially pass in a white dominant culture and how well they can pass or whether they're really kind of saddled with and and classified as Latin X in the world at large. And then for me as a white parent looking at my quote unquote lighter brown children, observing that they both have darker skin than I do, and at least right now have my dark blonde hair, which is not typical for a Latinx individual. I have a five-year-old Dana, you and I have talked about this outside of this interview, but his awareness of his racial identity already, that he's not Latinx, he's not Hispanic enough to really be Hispanic or Latinx, but he's not white enough to really be white. Can you speak to that struggle of having enough of something to check a box on Pew, but not enough to really have membership in that group? Yes. And that is, I feel like that's the age old like conflict for mixed race kids and, and interracial families. Um, so one of the things that you're talking about skin color, it's huge skin color. There's a whole, we call it skin color politics and there's a whole ism related to skin color, which is called colorism, which I'm sure you've heard the term. And I would just throw that in there. Colorism is big in our society, obviously, but it's, it's, it's an, it's a component in, um, interracial families. Um, and it's some people, some cultures value light skin 
simply for the fact that if your child has light skin, they can pass and they will likely not experience racism and colorism and some of the other isms that go along with that. And so some interracial families might value, even unconsciously, the lighter skin child, for example. Um, and there's there's many case examples and stories. There are many fiction books, actually, that that sort of highlight that story of mixed race families where one child maybe is darker skinned and one child is lighter skinned and how very different their experiences are, not just in society, but also within their family. And I wanna really highlight, because you are you were talking a little bit about your own family and your husband's family, colorism is, is, is not a black and white thing. Colorism is cross-cultural. It is, you can, you see colorism in um, Latin American countries, in India, in China, in every, all over the world, colorism is huge. And so how could it not be a part of the equation in mixed race families? And so I'm trying to circle back to your question, which is that can be really tricky for an individual to figure out where they fit. And one of the things I would say is because we identify race with skin color as opposed to ethnicity, like your heritage, like your Chinese heritage or your Nicaraguan heritage or your African heritage, um, it can be really confusing. But I will tell you right now, I'll share my own experience. I am a light-skinned mixed-race woman. And I will say out loud to people, I identify as Black, white, biracial, or I identify as a mixed-race Black woman. And I say that because you may not know that by looking at me. And I also acknowledge in those same conversations that I understand that my my experience in the world is categorically different than someone who has darker skin than me. And if I'm not willing to acknowledge that, that is that's problematic, right? And so for kids and adolescents who are trying to figure out where they fit, if we're doing it based on skin color alone, it, it would make sense that we might be lost and confused. And when I was a kid, for sure, I was mostly accepted by white people. I went to predominantly white schools in my elementary and junior high and high schools, and I was mostly accepted by the white groups. And most of those white kids perceived me as white and so sort of assumed I was white. And interestingly enough, I identified very strongly as biracial from a young age. But it doesn't necessarily matter how you identify like it does internally and emotionally, but it doesn't necessarily matter how you identify unless you're verbally saying it, because people are categorizing you, whether you ask them to or not. So by virtue of my skin color, I was passing, not intentionally, but I was passing for white because that's white people perceived me as white. And so I was sort of accepted as white, right? So your son's experience of like trying to figure out, well, I'm not brown enough to be um, Latinx or Latino, right? But the truth is, if you look at Latin American countries, there is so much diversity, right? It's not, Latin American people aren't all brown, but there's this assumption that to be Latin American or Latinx, that you have to be brown. 
because in America, race is based on skin color. And so then you have this complicating factor of, well, my skin color doesn't match, but my identity, like my, my, my sense of self and who I am is, I'm going to use your son as an example, is Latino or Latinx. I do identify as that. My mom is white. My dad is Nicaraguan. Like, this is who I am. But it takes time. He's so young. It takes time to really become firm and solid in that. And it has to be affirmed and reaffirmed for him from his parents and his family and maybe some peers, maybe the media. The more he sees, I can claim who I am, whether or not I fit according to other people, that's sort of the key. That's the process. And it takes it takes time. He's so little. He's going to be very influenced by peers, as we all are, but we become stronger in ourselves over time. And we're able to say, I am who I am. It doesn't matter what you say. I know who I am. But that's, he's little. So it's, it's hard. But I think the more you message to him, communicate to him, Yes, you are. And no, your skin isn't dark brown, like maybe he has a friend who has darker skin. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're less than or more than, right? So those are the kinds of conversations you have with kids. Your point about the importance of time and context was a really important one. And the idea that identity, I mean, as we know, regardless of ethnicity or race, identity is shaped continuously, constantly changes. We don't hit some arrival point and say, okay, I know who I am and I'm going to stay here. And if we do hit that arrival point, we're quickly reminded that that's not true and it's not accurate. Um, and, and I've witnessed that in my own family. And I have so many questions about this. Um, when, when therapists encounter people who have multiracial identities, what do you think clinicians need to keep in mind? Um, because you know, we we take the diversity trainings, we read the books. I have some on my shelf now, and so we meet people, and we, as you said, we all classify, and so we make assumptions based on their skin tone, based on their features, about what their ethnic background might be. Um, what do we particularly need to keep in mind for people who have multiple racial identities? Well, one of the biggest things is just like with any client, but particularly because of what we're talking about today, it's really important to not assume that a client's presenting issue is centered in their multiracial identity. It may have nothing to do with it. And um, historically, research on mixed race individuals was really determined to highlight the psychological disadvantages and problems that mixed race people had. So if you look at the old literature on the mixed race experience, it was really about the problems that mixed race people encountered and that they weren't whole, that they were always searching for some part of themselves that was missing. Um, but with the plethora of research and researchers now, we know that that is not a fact. It is. It can be a factor. And some people do struggle with their identity, but lots of some people struggle with their identity. It's not something just unique to mixed race people. So, um, and it's, and specifically racial identity, lots of people struggle with their racial identity. Lots of people of color struggle with their racial identity. Um, and so it's not just a, a, a mixed race phenomena to, to say. And so um, first and foremost, clinicians should keep in mind that whatever your clients bring to therapy, we don't want to assume 
that it's centered in their mixed race experience. But on the flip side, we don't want to also assume a client's race, racial identity. We want to be curious with our clients. I, you know, every, almost every clinician has some sort of intake paperwork and the, the client will fill it out. They might check boxes. They might write some sentences. And for me as a clinician, when I'm getting to know a client, I, I'm curious about all parts of who they are. And so I ask my clients to tell me a little bit about them. So I socially located myself at the beginning of this podcast. I think it's warranted and sometimes really comforting for clients when a, when a therapist sort of helps helps the client to know who they are because then the client tells them who they are and they might feel more comfortable to share and being curious tell me how you identify racially um how how does that does that connect at all to any of the things that we'll be talking about in therapy um and then circling back throughout therapy especially if you're paying attention to the so socio-political, socio-cultural, political climate right now, um, we would be remiss as clinicians if we didn't ask our clients how what is happening um, socially, culturally, and political in the United States is affecting them. And to not just make the assumption that that only affects people of color, that it probably affects people who identify as white, but then also to be sure that we check in with our clients who identify as mixed race or multiracial, because there is a unique sort of relationship to what is happening, particularly around racial injustice in the United States today, um, that multiracial people are contending with um, in support of Black lives, um, and also kind of where they navigating where they fit with all of that. And so those are some important things to just keep in mind um, when you're when you're working with mixed race clients to be curious about their experiences, to be curious about who they how they identify and how different aspects of their identity might intersect or interact with their presenting issues. I think that's a really good point. And in the other uh, diversity-based conversations we've had, whether that be working with people of a certain racial or ethnic background or gender or sexual identity, that same idea that I think clinicians, especially as a majority, where it's like, okay, well, this must be something that's really big for you, but actually clarifying for the client because it may not be. And I think you made a really important point there. How do we as clinicians support clients in working through these different identities um, as you've said, because it, it changes over time. And then we have things that are happening like right now as we record this, we're in October of 2020. So there, there is a whole lot of conversation about race, race as it relates to um, who's being affected uh, by the coronavirus outbreak, for example, race in relation to Black Lives Matter movement, so many different ways that this is coming up. How do clinicians support um if the client's wanting to have this conversation, this is important to them, the identification with these multiple identities. Yeah. So one of the early on in earlier research, um, there was a lot of research to sort of develop racial identity development models. So there's racial identity development models like Cross's model of Negrescence. There's um, models for Latinx identity, Asian identity, all kinds of identity development model, racial identity development models that exist. And um, early researchers in um, 
critical mixed race studies. It wasn't called that at the time, but early researchers were really trying to like help help mixed race people, but then also others understand this identity development. What happens? And so early models um, landed on there's like a final stage, and the final stage is solidification, like a solid a, a, a solidified identity, racial identity, and what we've talked about. Identity is fluid, right? So in some spaces, I might identify more strongly as multiracial and specifically identify more strongly with being Black. And in other spaces, I may feel less accepted. I always identify as my multiracial, but I may, may feel less accepted as multiracial and may feel specifically less accepted as a multiracial Black person. And so one of the things we want to keep in mind is that that, again, like we've already talked about, that can change and evolve over time and depending on space and place. And so currently, one of the things that I think is coming up for mixed race people, just like many people of color. So there's that acronym BIPOC. I know we're um, in a podcast, but you can think of those all caps BIPOC. So we're talking about Black, Indigenous people and people of color. Um, and the movement right now is for Indigenous and people of color to support Black lives, right? And so for mixed race people, Asian people, Latinx people, they're trying to figure out what is my place in supporting Black lives? Like, how do I use my voice and sort of keep in mind balancing, yes, I have my own experiences of marginalization, racism, discrimination, but right now we're centering the voices and experiences of Black lives. And so how do I honor my own experiences while uplifting the, the Black lives, right? Which I know you've had conversations, like you mentioned, with other um, people throughout this, this sort of period that we're in. And what I would say to that is, Mixed race people are struggling too. So I will use my own self as an example. As a mixed race Black woman who is perceived as white by most people, um, I cannot relate to the stigmatization and the stares and the overt racism that people, Black people with darker skin experience. I can't. It would be outrageous for me to say I could. And yet I identify as a black woman and it, and my role and my place in the black lives matter movement is critical and important. And I feel like I have to hold space for my own experience and honor the differences that others, the differences and experiences that others have. And so as a human, that has been a very intense emotional struggle. I feel pain. I feel the pain of the Black community. And I feel a part of, and I also feel separate from. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. And it's not making it about me. But this is my reality. And so in therapy, I would like to be able to talk about both and. Because when you're out there on the front lines, you have to suspend your experience to honor and uplift the Black experience, right? But it doesn't mean that you don't have your own struggles. And the same would be true for people who identify with other races, you know, Asian, Latinx, Indigenous peoples, that they also are trying to 
honor their experience as a marginalized person while uplifting the experiences of other. And sometimes you need space, which might be therapy, to talk about that openly, honestly, without judgment, without criticism. I hope I've answered your question. I think your point there is is really important. I I'm reminded of like a camera that's kind of zooming out and zooming in and you're saying okay, I can zoom out and appreciate simply as a person the struggle of a black and an African American person in white society in the United States. Um and then zooming into your own uh multiracial identity and then observing for myself as a parent of a of a child who is browner than I am, his sorting through what it means to be mixed race and to, you know, say, I, I am not white, I have a brown identity, and that that is simultaneously different than what it means to have black identity. And for me as a parent, it's fascinating to observe this because he's only five. Um, and before Dana and I were recording, I shared something that happened last night, which was my son sharing that um, he in his life has sometimes felt that when someone is mean to him, he's wondered whether or not that had to do with his racial identity. And already that's something that, you know, I, again, as a privileged white person, I didn't know when he was going to be confronted by these things and this awareness of his racial identity. And it's something that we talk about quite a bit in our family. But there it was before me that he was wondering, hey, was that person mean to me because I because I am brown or because I was not brown enough and having conversations about that with him. When it comes to this identity development piece, I'm just curious in the models that you know, where are the developmental stages um, that really encourage and and encapsulate this piece of of multiracial identity? Yeah, that's such a great, yeah, it's such a great question. And I will say that early research from Eric Erickson and like Marsha Cross and stuff like that, talking about Marsha and Cross, talking about identity development and this whole idea that you solidify your identity as an adolescent is hilarious. and we've really evolved and we have a whole, we have a whole model of de- developments. Um, Arnett has um, in- many years ago introduced the stage of emerging adulthood. And so um, when I first started writing, I guess it's been maybe 15 years ago, I really focused on adolescent identity development because that a lot of the research was really centered in solidifying your identity overall identity and your racial identity in adolescence. And I will say from my own personal experience, even when I was writing about it, that wasn't true. Um, Again, I came from a family where we didn't necessarily talk about race a lot. It was the 80s. And so um, there wasn't a lot of conversation. There obviously wasn't social media. And we were still in an era where if you were if you were mixed, you were black. And my parents didn't preach that to us, but we definitely heard it. We heard it from extended family and we heard it from, you know, sort of the larger community. But I always really strongly identified as biracial because I don't know why I had this sense that I did at a young age, but I said, well, I'm both my parents and both my parents are me. So I can't be one or the other. I have to be both. Like that was my childhood logic which now we have tons of stuff to support that and tons and tons of research that supports that, that that is a part of the process. And that when people of mixed race heritage feel, feel compelled socially 
or culturally to deny one part of their identity, when they feel compelled to deny it, um, it can be problematic. Um, and so the more options people have, the better. And I want to just go back to that thing I said many, many minutes ago, which was some people identify as a single race. They never identify as multiracial or mixed race. And originally, there was this idea in the research that that was problematic or, or psychologically costly. But what we know now is that one of the most important factors for mixed race people is to be able to identify in the way that they see fit. And so early on, people would say, people would say if a mixed race person identifies only as, let's say, for example, Japanese, and they, they deny their blackness, they only identify as Japanese, that's a problem. And what researchers have found is it's only a problem if it's a problem for them. Um, but what people, um, and that whole idea of single race identity comes from again, history and wanting to put people into categories. You are a single race. You can't be both. And there's a lot of complexity culturally for that single to have multi multiplicity, right? That's complex. People are like, wait, what? How is that even possible? But I'm living proof it's possible to say that that process starts early. And I think the exploration the social exploration, definitely in junior high or middle school and high school. And then when you break away from your family of origin or the family that's raising you and you go off, whether it's going off to a job or going off to college, I think that that is a time period. And Arnett's model of um, concept of emerging adulthood, where you sort of start testing what did my family tell me and, and what do I think? And what else is there out here? Because even middle school, junior high, high school, you're sort of in a, a bubble of sorts, right? And so when you sort of step out of that, whether that's into career or that's into um, college, it's an opportunity to really start testing all the different possibilities. And for myself personally, college was huge in helping me to identify more strongly with my black identity. Again, never denied my black identity, always identified as biracial, but it was the first time in my life, I went to a predominantly white institution for undergrad. It was the first time in my life that I was accepted as black. And that was profound for me. Um, to be in community with people who identified as Black, who accepted me as Black. I identified as mixed race, but I started identifying more strongly as a mixed race Black person. And that was really significant for me. And so I would just say that, yes, that sort of emerging adulthood per period, which is about 18, 19 to about 29, of course, we can't really book bookend it, but we do, um, is where we really see a lot of the kind of um, becoming more comfortable and more confident with either multiple identities in different spaces and places like we've talked about, or solidifying a more singular identity, like I identify as Black or I identify as multiracial. That is my identity. But we really see, I think, a lot more confidence sort of coming in that emerging adulthood period. I appreciate you covering that and kind of detailing. And I, yeah, I was thinking about that piece of the emerging adult identity and, 
and finding one's people in the world, really. It's a who am I and where do I fit into all of this? Coupling often happens, like dating, more dating often happens during that period too. There's experimenting with friendships and romantic relationships during that time too, which I also think has even stronger influence on identity development. For our listeners, you've covered a couple of different interventions, you know, use of the client's word in how they describe themselves, um, potential exploration of how their multicultural, multiracial identity affects them, and if that's something that's relevant and important to the therapeutic space. What are some other interventions that you find to be helpful for clinicians that are working with people who are multiracial? That's a great question. And I have lots of ideas. One of the things, there's there's literature out there, you brought up the word microaggression. Microaggression is a word we're hearing and using a lot more. And there's actually a lot of discussion about whether a microaggression is actually actually micro, which is also a topic for another day. But there's a there's a couple of articles um, that that where the researchers were examining the experiences of microaggressions for multiracial people. And they were looking at, they were kind of helping to define what microaggressions might look like inside the family and outside the family um, in, in, for mixed race um, people. And so one thing that you might do in therapy might be to bring that concept of microaggression into the therapy room and talk to clients about their experiences of microaggressions. So just to give you a few examples of what a microaggression would look like for a mixed race person, we will we often um, identify these as maybe compliments or, well, that's not negative, but these kinds of things can take its toll over time. So an, an example would be mixed people are so exotic or so beautiful. That's a compliment. It sounds really positive. But when you've been told your whole life, you're so exotic, you're so interesting, um, your, your hair is so beautiful, your eyes are so, whatever it might be that's being sort of exoticized, that can take its toll over time. Um, another very common microaggression that happens across cultures, but particularly since we're talking about the mixed race experience, is what are you? I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've been asked, what are you, by total and complete strangers. And the most common place I get asked that is the women's restroom, which is fascinating to me. Cannot tell you how many times I've been either in line or at the sink washing my hands and someone says, what are you? And I'm like, you know, and depending on this human, exactly, exactly. Depending on your stage of life and depending on your mood that day, you might say any number. Of things. <laughs> and then another example might be um, someone commenting to me that I talk white. And she hates it when mixed kids talk white. So those are examples of microaggressions that mixed people might experience. So we might name microaggressions. We might talk about or process microaggressions. Um, and sometimes just naming and acknowledging that those are real and that the impact of those statements over time can take its toll can be a, a really powerful sort of therapeutic intervention. And then another... Uh, intervention. I'm a huge fan of genograms. Um, I imagine that your listeners come from all different um, professions. And so the genogram is sort of the family map that is um, really common and in, in, in practice in um, marriage and family therapy. 
and um, the genogram with the cultural overlay. And so some people call them like culture grams. There's all different kinds of terms for them, but the basic is the genogram and really inter including in the genogram race and ethnicity of different family members, different generations, um, exploring um, experiences of racism, colorism, microaggressions in different generations, um, talking about different aspects of identity, not just racial identity, but also maybe gender identity, sexual identity. So that sort of cultural layer and integrating that and sort of exploring themes within the family system. You can also explore like interracial marriages or couplings in the family across generations and maybe themes about how it was accepted or not accepted over time. So there's a lot you can do with genograms as well. Um, those are two thoughts I have. There's tons of things, but those are a couple, couple of ideas. I really appreciate that. I think bringing up the genogram is a really good point. And also that idea of the microaggression, which as you said, in a lot of ways is not micro. And as the parent of of browner children than I am, it's really interesting. I've I've had the experience of a number of people stopping and commenting on how tan my babies are. And I'm like, that is not tan. We did not put these children in tanning booths when they were born. Um, so it, it's it's interesting just the outside observation of of race and and skin color and features and and they're it's it's really complicated and has different meaning too for everybody and how they feel that. And I think that's one of the takeaways I've gotten from you is like this is a very individual thing and how people identify it's what works for them. I would love to have you back and we can talk more about it because it's so multi-layered. Um, Dana, for our listeners who would like to learn more about you and your work, how do they get in touch with you? So um, I have a few publications out there uh, published under Dana J. Stone. Um, I have a couple of articles on mixed race families and then also the mixed race experience in academia. Um, and then uh, I also wanted to recommend a couple of books that um, I think could be beneficial for people, practice for practitioners, but then also for parents. So the first book I would recommend is Racing, Raising Biracial Children by Carrie Ann Rockmore and Tracy Lasloffy. It's published in 2005, so it's a little bit dated, but quite frankly, I think it's very relevant. And it's just a great book. It's grounded in research, but it's written for parents raising mixed race kids, multiracial kids. And then the other book I would recommend for practitioners who are really interested in digging deeper into this topic is Multiracial Cultural Attunement by Kelly Jackson and Gina Samuels. They are big um, in the field of critical mixed race studies. They're social workers and their book is brilliant. It's very user-friendly, lots of um, ideas, lots of case examples. And I've also written a book for early career therapists, um, Finding Their Voice. And this book is really written for beginning therapists or therapists in their first five to 10 years looking for a way to be more authentic and true to who they are in sense of in the sense of their identities. So uh, my co-author Jessica Chen Feng is identifies as Taiwanese American and as you all know identify as mixed race black. And we had um, some ups and downs in our graduate training and early career trying to figure out how to bring our racial, um, and ethnic identities and our 
gender identity into our work as clinicians. And so the book is really written um, to early career therapists, and it's called Finding Your Voice as a Beginning Marriage and Family Therapist. So my email is dana.stone at csun.edu. So that's a very easy email. You can always look me up on the CSUN website. Wonderful. Um, Dana, this has been enlightening and I think so helpful. I know for me as a parent of mixed race children, and I'm sure for our listeners in uh, wanting to work as competently um, as we can with this very unique population. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience and also your expertise with us. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And I think the conversation um, was beautiful because we have shared experience. And I think that that really opens doors. I think these, like you said, these conversations could go on because there's so many nuances. And so I just really appreciate the opportunity to be here. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.